Hi, good evening from Israel. My name is Ashley Perry. Um, uh, tonight, I hope we'll have a fascinating webinar given by Dr. Rafael Ben-Levy, um, titled, Does Israel Have a Grand Strategy? Um, just a little bit about our speaker tonight. Dr. Rafael Ben-Levy is a postdoctoral fellow at the University of Haifa and a lecturer at the IDF Military Command Academy. Previously, he was a research associate at the Institute for National Security Studies, INSS, in Tel Aviv, and a visiting researcher at Georgetown University. He received his Bachelor of Science from Technion, and uh, a Master's from Reichman University, formerly the IDC, and a PhD from Bailan University. Um, as usual, the format is uh, the speaker, uh, Dr. Ben Levy, will speak for about 15 minutes, and then we will open it up for the final 15 minutes to questions. So if you have any questions, please put them in the QA or in the chat and we will get to them after. Uh, and with that, Dr. Ben Levy, the floor is yours. Okay, well, uh, thank you so much, first of all, for inviting me, for uh, giving me the opportunity to talk to you guys and uh, for everyone, for the entire uh, crowd that's a uh, virtual crowd that's here. Um, okay, so what do I wanna say? Um, although Israel's options on the cardinal issues of national security are limited by external constraints to a large degree, to some degree, Israel being a regional power and not a superpower. Uh, I, I still will present today that there are competing schools of thought within the country's foreign policy elite uh, whose disagreements are, are rooted in alternative worldviews regarding grand strategy. Okay? And what I want to present is a little bit uh, schematic, right? I'm going to make it into two groups, and you might sometimes wonder, is it that uh, clear, clearly defined the difference between them? And uh, but but I think it's I think it's useful, and I think it does reflect something uh, something uh, deep and real. So I say that they're both. If you saw the uh, the little blurb, I call them assertive realists and defensive realists in in the Israeli sense, and I'll explain what I mean by that. Now I call them both realists because they're both concerned with hard power and recognizing limitations. No one's uh, a liberal internationalist. So maybe one side may be uh, um, sympathetic to that, but, but there's not of the mainstream schools that, that hold power. Both of them are some sort of realists. However, they still diverge on, on a number of extremely important issues. So I want to, I want to talk mainly in our short uh, talk about uh, about current uh, the way the, the current camps divide, but really in order to understand them, we got to go back to the roots of the pre-state years. So uh, really, you could it, the the uh, the main divergence here goes back to before Israel's founding. It's awakened out of the necessity uh, of the of the Jewish national movement to come to terms with the use of power after centuries in which the Jewish people were not living an independent sovereign existence. They were essentially living a powerless existence in terms of uh, political or sovereign power. And so the, the necessity to face that and to re reawaken that ability is, is what uh, is the backdrop for these different uh, approaches. So it really goes back, really have to start the story 100 years ago. Uh, during World War I, there was an argument within the Yishuv, which in the, Jew the Jewish community, the Zionist movement, regarding whether the Jews should join Britain in an attempt to participate in, in con conquering the land of Israel from the Turks, in order to then be in a position to uh, leverage that to further their national aspirations, 
or if they should try and step it out at the very most, try and defend their, uh, their agricultural communities, but not get involved in using force to further uh, political aspirations. So Jabotinsky, Trumpeldor, and others said a resounding yes, and this led to the founding of the Jewish brigades. Uh, however, the mainstream Zionist socialist leadership were not, uh, did not have a resounding yes, um, because again, they were focused on the very most uh, learning how to defend their own communities and, 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 and leaving it at that. The first, then came the first large scale uh, Arab riots against the Jewish community and the men in Mandate Palestine in the early 1920s. And it's on this backdrop when the Arabs rioted against Jewish national aspirations that the leadership of the Zionist communities and the Jewish communities in Mandate Palestine, that they were forced to confront the issue of, of force, of uh, defense, but using, using power head on. Many of them wanted to believe that the aspirations of Zionism would not necessarily require a violent clash with anyone. Uh, the, in fact, this had been the main belief for a number of decades. And many sought to cling to this belief, even in the face of the wide scale riots, they tried to explain them away. They tried to say that this was just a one-time uh, occurrence. So in 1923 though, Jabotinsky published a what became a famous article um, that where he argued that the Arabs of the region would not accept Jewish sovereignty out of their own free accord. And that the Zionist movement needs to come to terms with that. Right? And his assessment was that the Arabs would continue fighting unless it was it, their resistance to the Jewish national aspirations was met with overwhelming power that proved that violent resistance to Jewish national aspirations was futile. Right? And, and according to what Jabotinsky was uh, pr proposing, only then, only once they, th there was overwhelming power that uh, proved that violent resistance was futile, only then would, uh, would the Arab world come to adjust itself to accept the idea of a Jewish state. And he used a famous metaphor called the Iron Wall, Kira Balzit. So it's important to note, in the 1920s, Ben-Gurion was still partial to the mainstream socialist Zionist view. Uh, but, um, and, and they still, they, they were still hoping that improving the living conditions uh, of all of the residents of the land uh, would uh, win the Arabs over. But by the 1930s, by the late 1930s, certainly 1940s, Ben-Gurion essentially adopted Jabotinsky's view of the necessity of having overwhelming power. And this is the idea, the, the broad strategic idea that animated him throughout Israel's wars, uh, throughout all the series of Israel's wars from the, in the 40s, 50s, and 60s, and 70s. So he promoted the idea of a strategy of rounds called uh, Svavim. What does that mean? That it would require a number of rounds of fighting in order in which Israel must win decisively before the other side would win decisively each round before the other side would accept its existence and stop fighting. So in that framework, he, he also pursued the Kaddish operation in the 50s, pursued a nuclear capability, pursued the reprisal policies against terror attacks to the Fedayun in the 1950s. But the alternative view continued to exist, and its most prominent uh, representative was Moshe Sharet who was at first the foreign minister, became uh, prime minister for two years in the 50s. And he was opposed to Ben-Gurion on all of the above accounts. He was essentially opposed to the very idea of the Iron Wall. Right? He believed that peace would be possible without having decisive Israeli power. Right? That even too much power would be a provocation to the states uh, in the neighborhood. And that would even undermine the prospect of peace. He says he believed that it would not take a number of rounds of fighting 
in order to get to some sort of uh, peace agreement with, uh, with Egypt or Jordan or the others. Uh, but rather, we could do that by compromise at the moment, by, um, by certain concessions. And so that, that uh, his view was, um, was, did not become the dominant view. It was, uh, he led it, it was a faction within Mapai. Uh, he had Achduta Avoda, some of the other left-wing parties uh, in support, but essentially Ben-Gurion's view won the day and became Israel's dominant strategy for the first four decades of Israel's existence. However, in the 1990s and the 2000s, and in some ways through to today, the continuation of a view that can be Sharetists, you can say, Sharetists, or that goes back to uh, the view that the, in the 1920s that, would, could, that could embrace only defensive power, it uh, came to at some times lead lead the Israel foreign policy in some states and in some in some years, and uh, and it sort of continues to animate the different views today. So now what I want to do, I want to show a slide that sort of summarizes what how how these how these different views break up, uh, break down uh, currently. Uh, so I'm going to share my screen with you. And there we are. Okay, so here's my uh, my um, my breakdown of what I'm calling, oh, you called it uh, offensive realists in uh, in international relations terms, but they're I call them in Israel's context assertive realists because it's not offensive realists was was a term that is relevant more to great powers, and Israel is only a regional power, so. Uh, you excuse that. So, so political representatives have already sort of talked about that that hawkish labor rights in the founding years, that would be the mainstream Mapai. But then over the course of the years, and especially from the 1990s onward, uh, what was Mapai was, became the Israeli uh, Labor Party, uh, sort of left this uh, Ben-Gurion uh, assertive realist uh, strategy. And what came to take his place was the mainstream of Likud. And which what I'm saying is that the mainstream Likud has essentially continued on, they're carrying the mantle of what was initially Jabotinsky's idea, which was adopted by Ben Gurion, supported by Moshe Dayan and others, and and they're continuing that what what had been what had been the mainstream Israeli strategy uh, since its founding, and that if you look at the, what I'm calling the defensive realists, which was in the today or originally, like I said, you can see in part of the uh, uh, Mapai and other left wing parties. Today, the main current of the Labour Party, centrist Likud breakoffs like Kadima and others, and center left more or less belong to this camp. Although you see that it doesn't it never always lines up directly with political parties because these are more uh, broad these societal differences. Okay, so the roots of the conflict. So I sort of mentioned this. I'll just put it uh, clearly difference. Or according to the sort of realists, the I the roots of the conflict. Israel's broader conflict with both the, the local Arabs uh, the, the, uh, and the Arab states surrounding us is the ideological rejection of Israel amongst regional states or the Arabs in general. Essentially, Arab revisionism, where there's the defensive realist school of thought would say that there's a geopolitical competition between Arab nation states and Israel's nation and, and Israel as a nation state. You would expect a certain amount of competition and a certain amount of friction between them, but there's no deep ideological rejection, certainly not anymore, they would argue, right? Here I'm talking how these express themselves in the past, since the 1990s through to today. Um, as an outgrowth of their different assessments of the roots of the conflict, they, you have a different path to long-term security. So according to assertive realists, stability is gained, is attained 
through having regional superiority of hard, of hard power, of having Israel having regional superiority of hard power. That hard power is the strength that will convince adversaries that aggression is futile. And this was what will lead to peace agreements through the recognition of Israeli power, not territorial concessions. There's no necessity for that because it's power that will lead to, uh, to a peace agreement. On the other hand, the defensive realists will say that you need to be powerful enough in order to balance our adversaries. But, uh, but, 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 but too much Israeli power would already be a problem. Well, uh, so they don't want Israeli so superiority or overwhelming power. They just want enough. And uh, a few more of these to, to round it out. Um, okay, so there are different views as well of the relationships with great powers. So everyone agrees that Israel must work with great powers, right? Ben-Gurion is one of his founding principles of Israeli strategy that Israel must work with uh, a superpower. At first it was France, by the 70s it, it had become the United States. But, but Ben-Gurion is also clear, you must work with, uh, with great powers, but you also must be willing to break with them if necessary and cooperate with other powers at the same time. Right? It's not that uh, Israel must necessarily uh, do whatever it is that its great power ally pressures it or suggests that it does. Then the defensive realist camp assess Israel's dependence on the United States or on other great powers as being uh, deep and existential. Uh, their, their assessment of the dependence is in some way, some of them will put it that Israel wouldn't exist without uh, support from uh, superpower, in this case, the United States. So their call would be to always hold dialogue, maybe put its case forward, but always cooperate as well. To avoid tensions and surprises uh, with its, in its dialogue with its uh, superpower ally. Um, they also disagree according with, uh, regarding the importance of territory. So a sort of realist will say that we need to maintain territorial control as for security buffer zones. Therefore, they were opposed to the leaving of the withdrawal from southern, southern Lebanon in the late 90s to the Gaza withdrawal and other uh, prospects And because withdrawal projects weakness. On the other hand, the defensive realists have embraced the broader strategy known as territorial retrenchment. They see the post-1967 status quo as a, as a strategic liability. They, and so they say that we need to retrench from territories outside of Israel proper, including South Lebanon, Southern Lebanon, Gaza, and then uh, Olmert uh, pro proposed what he called the uh, convergence plan, which is essentially withdrawal from most of Judea and Samaria. And in order, and the idea is to avoid overextension. It's not that they, these people believe that Israel is illegal occupying or anything like that. It's a realist uh, claim saying that Israel can't afford to continue uh, controlling buffer zones, and it needs to strengthen its defensive capabilities and, and uh, bring itself uh, into a smaller uh, uh, area. Um, two more lines, and then uh, we'll stop for questions. Um, and so how does this impact on preferences for use of force? So according to assertive realists, possessing power, possessing the overwhelming power actually lowers the chance of having to use it. Meaning if Israel is strong, then, it, then there, it's most likely will deter its enemies. And when necessary, then it should be used decisively and unilaterally. Decisively, like in Ben-Gurion's uh, uh, conception, it doesn't mean that there'll be one final war and that's it. But rather each rotation, each, each uh, conflict needs to be done decisively where Israel is a clearly the victor, the victor and the other side understands that and recognizes that. 
Uh, on the other hand, defensive realists would say that we need to use defensive force without hesitation. They're, they're not pacifists in any way, but they would see defensive technological measures as being better than offensive ones. And they would look to stabilize conflict with political agreements itself. Not that the political agreements are, a, are an outgrowth of the fundamental balance of power, but rather the political agreements themselves are able to construct, form, uh, you know, lead to and, and, and hold together a, uh, a situation that wasn't there, that wasn't fundamentally um, in, in their interests or, or going to exist without the agreement. Um, and use force, uh, but almost, but but almost exclusively with the support from the U.S. And finally, uh, this impacts their of their views of what needs to be Israel's strategic priority. And if you look over the '90s and 2000s until today, the, what the assertive realist camp is, says is that Iran, the Iranian threat and its proxies, is the primary and most urgent strategic threat to Israel today, and that the Palestinian arena is a secondary issue. And that the Palestinian arena needs to be managed, and uh, and and it's not clear what exactly Israel might do to that might might do on that front, but it certainly is not the main issue that needs to be dealt with. Iran is, and uh, therefore concessions to Palestinians embolden Iran. And the defensive realists come back and say that the Palestinian arena is at least as important as Iran, if not more. If you look at Olmert. Uh, Ehud Olmert, Israel's former prime minister, and Ehud Barak and Tzipi Livina and, and others that were in power in the 2000s, this was their, this was their uh, explicit claim that the, uh, the issue of Israel's control of Judea and Samaria and getting a, or completing the peace process and coming to agreement uh, with the Palestinian Authority and its various representatives is Israel's number one strategic imperative. And this is what they need to do to make concessions to Palestinians in order to gain American support against Iran. All right, so I'm going to stop talking now, and uh, I'd be very happy to hear uh, your uh, comments and questions. Great. Uh, thank you so much, uh, Dr. Ben Levy. I'm going to take my privilege as a host to ask the first question, if that's okay. Um, Professor Daniel Pipes, the, uh, the president of the Middle East Forum, has long spoken about what he describes as uh, Israel victory. Uh, the idea that you have to use overwhelming force or not necessarily military force, but uh, use many pressure points to convince the Palestinians that their rejectionism, their violent rejectionism against Jewish sovereignty has ended. They should give up and accept Israel as the Jewish state, its permanence, etc. And only then can there possibly be peace, uh, very similar to some of, uh, 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 some of what you went uh, through before. How much do you, how, how much do you think that idea, I mean, we've taken a few polls throughout the years, and it seems in theory, at least when during a poll, uh, that there is significant support for that amongst Israelis. How much support do you think there is amongst the political uh, elites today in Israel for, for such an idea? And is it necessary? Mm -hmm. Okay, well, the, yeah, that, that's, a, that's a great point. And uh, I think that the idea of the Iron Wall has been applied much more successfully toward the region than it has toward the most near uh, challenge of security challenges, which is the Palestinian arena, right? And, and of course, the Abraham Accords of the past year or two are just an expression of precisely that, right? About the Arabs dropping their insistence, uh, insistence that the Palestinian issue must be solved before normalization and going to normalization, all uh, thanks to Israel's overwhelming power. And before that, facing Egypt and Jordan as well, very clear that it's because Israel proved uh, um, 
you know, in, in the proved, proved itself and defending itself uh, in the in the initial wars with Egypt, and that led Egypt to turn around and accept uh, and, and look for peace. Now, the idea of the Iron Wall, I think, has not been applied uh, explicitly toward the uh, Arab residents of Judea and Samaria, and uh, and 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 I think that how, your question is how much support would there be amongst Israelis to see that? I think that's become, it's, it's that issue or that arena is always mixed foreign policy and domestic policy, right? And it's always been easier to apply it and, uh, and get some sort of consensus across the center right and center left or, or, or the people in power were able to apply it much easier uh, externally than internally because the issue of uh, Arabs and Palestinian areas is connected also to the issue of Israeli Arabs. Right? And the only thing that's potentially changing now is that the last year, the last year, the May riots, the May, the May 2022 riots, uh, a year ago changed something in, in many of the people who were in the center left who sort of hoped that, um, that there was a clear distinction between what people call today Palestinians, which is what they refer to as Arab residents of Judea Samaria who are not citizens of Israel, and Arab Israelis. Right? And what came to be clear uh, by, their own, um, by their own declaration, essentially, is that Arab Israelis identify with the Palestinian national movement. Right? And, uh, and this, this was a breaking point for many Israelis that thought that that couldn't be possible. Right? So it's possible that, that the idea of having decisive, um, having a, it's not necessarily use of force, but a decisive action and decision to make the other side clear that it's, uh, you know, it's a strategy of steps, like as, as Arafat uh, used to describe it, is not going to work. And um, I, I think possibly that, that, that it might be turning. Thank you very much. Um, I have a question here from Larry Greenberg. Uh, he asks, culture, the strong horse in Islam, the supersessionist religion, are at play in the Arab Muslim world. How does Israel balance being overwhelmingly powerful in a way to win over Saudi Arabia and Walmart relations with Egypt and Jordan, thereby forcing a reasonable solution with the Palestinians. Forcing a reasonable solution. I'm not sure. If, could you just repeat part of that? How do, the, the question? I'll, I'll the just answer? repeat. <laughs> so yeah. I'm just repeating the question. Culture, the strong horse in Islam, the supersessionist religion are at play in the Arab Muslim world. How does Israel balance? being overwhelmingly powerful in a way to win over Saudi Arabian warm-up relations with Egypt and Jordan, thereby forcing a reasonable solution with the Palestinians. Yeah. Okay, well, I'm not sure if much balance needs needs to be in the act, right? Uh, I mean, if you ask me, and I'm going to promote uh, what the sort of realist uh, camp would say, because that's more or less what I would promote, uh, is that uh, quite the opposite. What, what is What has led the Gulf states to search for an agreement and to come to terms and normalize relations with Israel uh, is not a balance of power, but it's rather the fact that when they look around at uh, various actors in the region, they see Iran on one side, and the only state that's capable of uh, having enough power to act against it and actually does on a regular basis is Israel. And they say, and th therefore the normalization has happened not despite Israelis, Israel's power, but, uh, but thanks to it. Right? So uh, I, I think for Saudi Arabia, that is essentially the same uh, equation. Uh, as far as what, what I understand about um, what might be holding the issue back with Saudi Arabia is that there's a difference in generation between the king and uh, and the, and MBS, 
right? And the king is still part of the older generation who's, who's having a, a difficulty making that mental uh, step and making that, you know, of, of uh, coming to terms with Israel. Uh, but the next generation will. And of course, I, I would like to actually add, add to that a few things that uh, that it's not just the what what Israel's power is, but the American, the U.S. has the ability to tip the scales and either move things forward or hold things back. And there were three things that the Trump administration did that allowed normalization to move forward and which up until now, Biden hasn't done. The first one is they supported Saudi Arabia's uh, um, operation in Yemen against uh, its own uh, Iranian proxies, and there was clear support for that. And Saudi Arabia understood that it has that someone's uh, that that the teams are clear and that it has its back. Uh, not Saudi Arabia, but the other Gulf states was was clear that that the U.S. has its back. Another one is that they were clear that we were clearly applying maximum pressure on Iran, right, and not looking and and they the the worries, the concerns that the Gulf states had in 2013 and 14 that maybe the U.S was going to have some sort of grand strategic shift and shift its uh, allies in, into an ally, into alliance with Iran and, and leave the, the sunny Gulf states, uh, that was put to rest. And it was clear that the United States was clear on their side. And the third was the, uh, the, the Trump uh, deal of the century, which where essentially, uh, if you remember the few months preceding the announcements of the Abraham Accords, uh, the discussion in Israel was how much of the of the deal should we take, and should Israel unilaterally annex uh, parts of Judea and Samaria? And the fact that and the Trump administration was saying, you know, may, maybe I might do that. I might we might be okay with that, right? And and the very fact that they showed that that was possible allowed something new to be added to the table that could then be removed from the table as a concession, as a final closing uh, point uh, to allow the UAE to go forward. And, and take the bold step of actually signing normalization. And so essentially when the Biden administration came in, they reversed all three of those policies. They turned a cold uh, shoulder to Saudi Arabia's um, operations in, in Yemen. They moved to make concessions to Iran and the nuclear deal and, and remake a nuclear deal. And they made it clear that they were fully pushing a two, fully two-state solution and that there'd be no having any uh, Israeli sovereignty in any part of the Judean Samaria. And so they essentially made a dead letter of a Saudi, Arabia, Saudi Israel normalization. What we're seeing today currently is, is essentially Biden administration rolling back all three of those policies that began its administration with. Okay. Uh, you answered Paul Kaplan's question a little bit earlier, which of these two groups do you reside? Um, but JL has a question, which camp do you think most Israelis fall into today? Mm. Um, well, I think that the vast majority of the uh, society, the broader society, would support the assertive realist uh, position. Uh, however, the defensive realist uh, camp or people ascribing to that camp have more are more highly representative in uh, represented in the Israeli security establishment, be it the IDF or the uh, Shabak and sometimes the Mossad, and so uh, so so you you see that there's a bit of a dissonance. Whereas for the most part, especially the because of the political situation, where this is not the only issue, that you know the vast majority of Israelis voted for right wing parties that are more or less supportive of what I described as sort of realist position. Right. And the, the, the issue of today, the reason we have a, uh, a coalition, a, you know, um, a, a both sides of, of all sides uh, in Israeli politics is because of the issue of Netanyahu and his, specifically about him and not about the broader ideas of the over 60, 70 percent of Israeli society. Thank you. Um, Lisa Bernard asks, how do the two camps view the world 
public relations and propaganda campaigns like BDS against Israel, the, the intent to isolate Israel on the international stage? Yeah, I, I think BDS is, is really a uh, nonpartisan issue. Uh, both camps are, can totally uh, cooperate on that. It's funny, you see sometimes prominent Israeli leftists like uh, Amos Oz, uh, Amanoach, at the time that in Israel, he's, he's like the, um, the, 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 left, the left goalpost. But when he goes abroad to Europe, you see him defending Israel uh, adamantly, right? Because there, when it comes to the question of 48, right, is the issue 48, there's no, uh, th there's broad consensus. Even the defensive realists are on board for, for 48. They're worried about 67, strategic liability. Even then, they, they don't even really buy the idea of Israel is uh, immorally occupying uh, the Judean Samaria or legally. Even that is not even in the mainstream left, center-left consensus. Their issue is a strategic one. It's a demographic one. Uh, so on the issue of bar BDS, everyone across the board of anything that's close to mainstream uh, is, is totally against it. Uh, you only find support of BDS uh, amongst Israelis and extreme left-wing academics, um, potentially. And one final question before we have to go. Um, how much do you think that the government, the electoral, uh, electoral system, which lends itself to short-term tactical thinking, uh, ensures that, let's just say, the, uh, you know, the, the assertive realist camp has not been able to, uh, to really ensure that its ideology and its uh, long-term strategic goals uh, come to fruition? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so that's that's certainly a difficulty. It's one of the biggest difficulties of trying to apply any kind of Israeli grand strategy. You put the title, does Israel have a grand strategy? So it has good, it has ideas, but the ability to uh, follow through with a long-term policy is obviously uh, undermined by the um, instability of, uh, of electoral politics. Um, I would say though, that because uh, there, there are, um, there are moderating factors because a lot of the, even though there's a lot of parties, what I described is it would be accepted by almost all of the right-wing parties and maybe a few individuals within, within left-wing parties. And uh, so in some sense, even though the party politics change, there are sort of some fundamentals that are in consensus. Uh, and those, those are the things that wind up getting done, essentially. But uh, I definitely think that uh, if we had a more stable political system, then the views, which are, have the support of the vast majority of the population, would be able to apply, be applied and, and implemented long-term in a much more effective way. Great. Thank you very much. I appreciate your time, Dr. Ben Levy. Thank you very much on behalf of all the participants. Uh, finally, please tune in on Wednesday, 3 o'clock Eastern Standard Time for my weekly Israel Insider. Uh, webinar where I give an update of what's going on in Israeli politics, Israeli diplomacy, and everything else that's going on in Israel. Uh, so I look forward to seeing you then. Thank you very much again, Dr. Ben Levy, and have a good day. Thank you all.